Let me start with gratitude to Sri Aurobindo and the mother who have given a light which on the one side leads us to the future and not just a future, a luminous future in the world as it is where everybody is speaking about doomsday and a bleak future. Here is not just a beacon of light but a lighthouse, the sunlight if I may say so, which shows that beyond the night there is this beautiful dawn not just waiting for us, it's already come and all that we need is to open the curtains of the windows and we shall be able to feel its pulsations in our heart, in our mind, in our life itself. So gratitude to them. And this light also throws, uh, you know, this is an all-encompassing light. It not only shows us the future, shows us the present crisis and how humanity should steer through it, and then this light reveals to us uh, the documents of the past and what they really mean. And when Shubhendu speaks of these documents of the past, it seems that he is reliving what he has already experienced in a particular age. There's a beautiful line from Savitri which comes to my mind. An archivist of the symbols of the beyond, he bore the stamp of mighty memories. And uh, this is what I feel when I read Mother and Shobindo on these various subjects, that they are not just uh, interpreting something, not even in the light of their experience, which has gone way beyond the traditional um, uh, you know, limits of spiritual experience, but something which they, uh, which they brought together, she remembers. I remember one of the uh, stories when Mother was watching a film, I think it was uh, on Rani Lakshmi Bai, and she said, this is not how it happened. And at another time when she was, uh, you know, she went to a palace and she saw and suddenly she said, this is not how it is, the way they describe it. So when Shurvindu describes about the Mahabharata, uh, you can clearly see that this is not just a historical way of revealing things, but things which are self-revealed. And here a new aspect of Shurvindu comes in which we have hardly touched in all his standard biographies. We have so many um, aspects of Shurabindu, but nowhere we see Shurabindu the historian. Now, Shurabindu the historian is not uh, just telling us outer facts and figures, but the deeper import of history. And he's not just Indian history, mind you. He speaks about Western history. He speaks about, you know, ancient, the way tribes came together, they joined. And he makes such a beautiful comparative study of history. So let's come with that to the issue of Mahabharat. Once again, salutations to Mahabharati, Mother India, for opening so many doors to spiritual life. And this is something so wonderful that, uh, um, I mean, every path she has opened. Look at the Vedas and the Upanishads. So those endured with a kind of intuitive spiritual sense, a kind of intellectual uh, mind which is ready to receive higher light, uh, take that route, the Vedas and the Upanishads. But there are those who have a heart of bhakti, the religious sense. So you have the Puranas, those who want to understand the technology of the cosmos. <laughs> so you have the Tantras, everything leading you towards the one. And for those who want to um, understand spirituality in flesh and blood. So it's okay that, okay, this is what the Vedas tell us, this is what the Upanishads tell us. And this is how it should be, all things which are beautiful and high and true. But we want to know how is it in terms of real life, because that's the ultimate uh, 
uh, hallmark of true spiritual living. So we have the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. So Ramayana and the Mahabharata are not just, they are known as Itihasas. And Itihas literally means Itihas. So it happened. So there is a story around which, the legend you may call it a story, a real story around which the whole superstructure has been developed. So there is a nucleus, Itihas. But why these epics have continued to endure is, one is because they have sprung from the soul of a nation. Uh, that's how all true epic must spring. And it has sprung from the soul of a nation. Shurabinda even says it is not one person or few persons who have written Mahabharata. It is the soul of India which has written Mahabharata. Its people, the story of its people, its life, its culture, its tradition, all that is embodied here. So again, it's not just history in the sense of just the war and what happened in an epoch of time, but how a people lived, how they conceived life, how they connected with it, all the various aspects and dimensions in real time. That's what we see in Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Of course, there is a little difference because Ramayana describes that both are tales of evolutionary crisis when humanity is going through a moment of evolutionary crisis. But the difference is that Ramayana is in an early humanity which is flush with the sense of divinity. Very intuitive when we look at the early stage of humanity when the mind does not come in to rope in and change things. It still lives in its pristine purity, simplicity. The moods are so much direct and still, you know, when Valmiki describes these emotions, he lifts them to such sublimity, colors them. It's like a uh, ocean of feelings which is flowing and taking different shapes, shades, forms. It's amazing. And Every character is taken to a zenith. For instance, we have the Ravana. So Ravana is, uh, you know, you, you won't find another, uh, what we, we may call as Devan <laughs> in the whole history of Devanhood as Ravana. In every which way, he exceeds on every dimension, this titan. But equally, when we look at Rama, you can't find another character like Ravana, Rama. In Ram, in every aspect of life, again, he exceeds in every way we can imagine. So does Sita. And, you know, that way, it's a story when humanity is still in its uh, more animal, rakshasic, asuric stage and Ram brings in the light of uh, reason and illumin illumination to take it further. But since the subject today is Mahabharata, in Mahabharata we see a different style. Though that, again, there is the evolutionary issue, there is the um, common theme in all Indian epics primarily uh, in the way Indian, India, Indian mind understood morality or dharma is they saw in this creation a battle between the forces of darkness and light. This is germane to Indian thought. One of the things which we find in the Vedas, in the Puranas, in countless legends. And we always understood life as these two forces, one which want to disintegrate, another which want to integrate, take things up. And human beings had to make a choice, nations had to make a choice, kingdoms had to make a choice, uh, especially when um, things stood at an evolutionary crisis. So we see again in Vyas, its style is very different. It's very direct, mighty, strong, um, it, but its intensity is subdued. When we read the Ramayana, the intensity carries, you are almost carried away by the intensity. But Mahabharata doesn't give that kind of feel. Mahabharata rather gives, absorbs you in the scenes and the substance that is going through. It's like you are watching a movie and you are just uh, enjoying it. Ramayana, you are, you are experiencing the emotions that are taking place in the heart of the subjects. So there is a little difference. Vyas is much more direct, much more straight much more simple. He 
doesn't if if i use a uh, more modern uh, terminology it doesn't means words so you know he does he's not ornamental that way uh, but he conveys his point with a great strength with a great power so this is what the mahabharata is again a story of evolutionary crisis when humanity has to choose a way uh, one of the two one is of course the way of dharma and the other is the way of adharma uh, if it chooses the way of adharma it is bound to take evolutionary impulsion in creation of which human beings are the highest at this point of time catalyst uh, centuries backward or if it follows that upward earth it will take leaps and bounds so uh, here is the story where we see that there are two forces which are constantly acting uh, indian thought understood it so well and we'll see how relevant it is in today's times so there is in the formation of a nation actually even in the world but let's take because especially the indian nation we have seen these forces act with great intensity and one is the centripetal force and the other is the centrifugal so centripetal force is those we want to build an empire akhand bharat so that's how we see that you know there is there is a tendency in india to build a unified uh, not uh, uniform but a unified congree of nations india is a subcontinent there were many small little not just tribes but kingdoms to weave them together because they are tied by a common cultural bond and to create a land of dharma so there is the centripetal force and on the other side there are small 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 little nations or kingdoms which want to break away the centripetal force so this we see in not only in mahabharata we see it much earlier for instance in the as earliest parshuram now we all know the story but if we really look at it um, even in fact um, he is one of the earliest one we see that higher kingdom had almost created an empire huge empire very valiant warriors including this man who ultimately killed rishi jamdagni father of parshuram uh, there you know that's where the kshatriya impulse went wrong and it became very uh, arrogant but before that um, kartvid jarjun is a you know man who is trying to create an empire based on dharma but then well he slips whatever that's rest is history and during that time parshuram slays all the kshatriyas uh, which he could find in any pocket <laughs> because he said no this arrogance uh, doesn't go with his conception of what dharma should be so it's a very amazing tale and uh, then comes this lineage of they simultaneously a lineage of ikshvaku kings they are the first ones who have created real empires so one of them is bhagirath bhagirath of the fame of uh ganges avtaran he also created an empire an empire based on dharma there is another king mandhata he also created an empire all of them are ragukul reet sadachaliyai pranajay parvachanajay they all belong to the great clan of ragu immortalized in works of kalidas raghuvansham the so they were the ones who tried to build an empire and uh, they succeeded for if you look at uh, ram's journey from all the way from ayodhya to lanka and why do they want to build an empire it's very interesting this empire is not built for just aggrandizing oneself or gathering the resources and looting and plundering not at all we see as early as ramayana look at the nobility of the emperor i mean uh, lord ram has conquered but nobody proclaims that i am the king he says i am acting on behalf of bharat and wherever he has conquered he coronates the uh, local uh, tribal chieftain as the king so vibhishan becomes the king in lanka um, sugri becomes the king in kishkindha though he has gone through and they have 
either through pact or conquest uh, all of them so it was a congregation of nations empires in the indian context never meant uh, destroying the life of the conquered so one of the things about the aryan civilization is that it does conquer but it ennobles what it conquers so in the asuric um, way of life it brings in the uh, idea of dharma and then leaves them free in their own way to develop it to follow it and you know Uh, so this is something which we find as early as the time of lord ram and we also find there a very interesting idea of the king so you know it is again very relevant in today's times also so who is the king in the indian context you know he is not a depo so king is largely if we look at it closely he doesn't uh, lift his arm and say my word is uh, final nowhere you see there is the king who has the final word but there is the assembly of chieftains the warlords and he must consult them this is just like the ancient greeks uh, you know shobindos ilion you see the book of assembly in in mahabharata the sabha parv so dhritarashtra calls all the chieftains and they will give their ideas view point he will listen to all of them final decision he will take is like our in president so he takes the final decision but it is always with the council of minister and then there is the voice of the people so all these three things have always gone together the janpads so this is how indian uh, confederation has evolved and it's important to understand because it has its rootings now also now when we look at mahabharata time we see that there are three uh, types of Uh, forces which are acting or three types of kingdoms so one is the kingdom which are going toward the east northern and eastern side so uh, you have among them i think kaushal is kingdom magadh is a great empire jarasand and uh, then you have chedi uh, sishupal's empire and all these kingdoms and further if we go we have mats and then there are western and southern kingdoms and then there are central kingdoms so central kingdoms are very powerful bhoj and um, you know some of them come from the lineage of ikshvaku so when they aligned during the mahabharata war and shivindu uses is to explain that the war it has really happened and he uses a very different approach to the whole thing because people often say there was no war it's all symbolic whether it was actually written or not written all these controversies shivindu says if a war really happened then in the whole story line the causes of war must be evident what led to the war and then he analyzes how beautifully vyas has presented the political scenario so the there were there were this tendency to form empires as we have seen ikshvaku clan haya dynasty and then the latest was kuru empire now these empires were important because if the empires are not important at that point of time you will have the centripetal forces and there will be no nation unit so nation is like a yagyavedi a land where a certain group uh, group life which is of course varied stratified heterogeneous but it evolves a certain way of life that that's a nation soul is meant to be so we see that during the mahabharata time you have these uh, three types of one one are those who are siding with duryodhana and very interesting people who are siding with duryodhana are from the west right going up to kandahar gandhar and uh, you go further south now these people in the southern states including um, you know shalya who actually is a relative of the pandavas but he doesn't side with them and what a astute political statesman uh, not statesman but political analyst vyas is now why why they are siding with uh, duryodhan uh, 
of course we have a very picturesque story built around it but simply because these regions wanted autonomy and they wanted a weak king <laughs> look at put it in modern context and see what are the forces which want weak center precisely those who want to be free and autonomous they don't want any central authority so you will see even today there are people who are siding with a weak center they want a weak center they want a weak center which is all the time appeasing because this way they have their by autonomy means they will do whatever they feel like doing so these are the people who sided with duryodhana because they knew and it's interesting gandhari also points this out gandhari says that my son he may win the war but he is not worthy of being a chakravarti samrat because he won't be able to hold the kingdom uh, more than you know uh, for for maybe a lot less than half a century so they are siding standing behind him they want duryodhana to be king why because they are not interested in duryodhana they want their autonomy this is the one part then in bengal you have on the further side of the angadesh angadesh goes further in the east that we know is a bought over whole story but then there are others who have a uh, axe to grind against the kuru empire why because kuru empire is the last which has come so all the certain clans which were eyeing on becoming an emperor themselves they have an axe to grind so we see that jarasand and um, chedi the the magad and chedi empire though krishna has got them killed yet they join forces with pandavas it's very interesting same we see with drupad and you know uh, uh, of course mats naresh virat and um, the panchals they go with um, with pandavas but it's very interesting that chedi and magad empire these two empires their kings were actually killed shishupal by shri krishna in the rajsuyag and we see that magad emperor jarasand is killed uh, shri krishna gets him killed because he right from the beginning we understand what krishna's work was he was trying to build a nation against heavy odds and he knew that these each of them has the ambition to become an emperor and they are capable jarasand was a very very strong and mighty king and he had he looked after his subjects quite well regardless of you know uh, whatever his uh, tendencies were and so also with shishupal bhurishava all these people wanted to have an empire and they knew that their challenge is against the kuru kuru clan and if they came together they could probably defeat the kuru this is the ambition they were holding <laughs> so when their kings go away they still side with pandava because they want to see the kuru kingdom defeated at least they will have a share in the empire so we have this this clan and then there is koshalas the koshal and bhoj and you know um, uh, panchal especially now they stand much uh, they they stand solid because they have tasted particularly they some of them belong to the lineage of um, ikshvaku koshal much they so they have they know what an empire is so they want an empire they don't want a weak um, united india they want india to be i mean i am using the term which is more modern but aryavart bharatvarsh to be strong united because they understand that that is what will make everybody prosperous and happy so the way vyas analyzes and how she krishna has seen that entire geopolitical scenario is something which is a you know i think it's it's worth a thesis that how he analyzed and how he went about creating a nation based on dharma so he starts with the rajasu yagya of uh, yudhishthir and we see how vyas described you know it's very interesting vyas 
always stops short of the uh, you know he the, his characters are also superhuman but he still he keeps them within the range of humanity he will not let them exceed a point see ram is evidently superhuman when he uh, fights it's impossible i mean who who is this warrior who can shake all the uh, that's what even mandodri says when she uh, comes to meet ram after ravana has died and she says i am sorry i have uh, i had no choice but to uh, i am the aparadhi i have killed your husband i am the one he says no 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 that's not what i have come i have come to see who is this man so great that he could kill my uh, kill my husband who had conquered all the three worlds who could be so great so when you look at ram he is beyond anything you can imagine you won't find such characters in mahabharata bhishma is great he has ikshamrityu Uh, trained by parshuram all that is good they have celestial weapons but none of them which goes beyond he stops short he subdues them because the crisis is not the earlier crisis of humanity but when humanity is already there and it has developed all kinds of weapons equipment and now it has to choose a particular path and one of the works of shri krishna was to establish a nation you see when rama came he established arivart out of jambudweep it was a jambudweep known as jambudweep because you know it had watered on three sides then or also uh, three dweeps you know that's how it was also known as and uh, that's where the term dravid came which has been so much distorted dravid literally means drought is surrounded by water on three sides this is what the name means and it has been made, turned into a you know it referred to india <laughs> it has been turned into a very a different kind of a uh, what shall i say the divide to create a divide between the indian people all through there was a single culture single culture indian culture is in its single it is many hued and many colored but that's a different subject altogether so we see that uh, one of the work of shri krishna which goes unnoticed because on one side we see him as a, a super miraculous figure in bhagavat um, in mahabharata he is not described like that nowhere there is only one place now you can feel that vyas is portraying him as if he it is understood that he is he is you know he is uh, he is a godhead but it's nowhere mentioned vyas doesn't bring it out he leaves it to us but he portrays him as the one who is the center of everything so that's why these people uh, shishupal has a problem with krishna because he knows behind rajsu yagya it is krishna Bhurishrava has a problem with Krishna because he knows that behind the building of this empire it is Krishna, and of course we shouldn't forget the Yadavas because they, these were the three main empires: the Magad, the Kuru, and the Yadavas. So Yadavas were very, you know, they were um, very valiant warriors, mighty, uh, but they were in in a certain sense confused about what side they should take because if you see, they are they after the. Chandravansi, Suryavansi, and the Chandravansi are coming to a halt. Then we see the Yadavas are. taking uh, you know predominance so the yadav clan the the yadukul it was a divided house in its own right they didn't know which way to go fully and in yudhist in the house of dhritrast we see that there are these two kinds of that's again a very divided house why because the elder the elders they want to remain with dharma so we have dhritrast uh, we have bhishma and um krupachary and of course 
drona who wants to vidur they all want to go with dharma so you know but yet very strangely they end up taking sides with the with duryodhana and shrivindu gives a very different understanding to this he says ki basically they were strongly attached to the idea of kuru empire so they knew that dharma is with pandavas but right now the empire is kuru so they are also that way kuru after all in the larger context we call them pandavas because they are son of pandu but they are also belong to the same kuru clan but after much thought why bhishma and dron don't side with them they could have done that because they see behind them the panchals and the mats and therefore they feel that if the pandavas win kuru empire will be threatened because it will be basically the panchals and mats narish will rule so the way he analyzes the situation if we apply today to modern india you know when shirobindo said that um, i don't know why they keep painting me as a philosopher not exact words but uh, i have the politician and the poet in me and you understand what he means by politics politics is not about just you know uh, power not at all it's about it's an instrument for the divine to create a land of dharma a group of people who can be guided by dharma there is no other individual can be guided by his own inner uh, development but how do you govern a group of people according to dharma so the whole dilemma of shri krishna is how to establish a kingdom of, which is based on dharma so he starts removing these ambitious kings jarasand is the first one to take the toll then of course sishupal has already been eliminated then come these entire you know from jayadrath and um, all this kandahar all those uh, sindhu desh so sindhu desh is modern pakistan and kandahar is afghanistan so india was extending all this so this my answer to you know when uh, chinese say that you know this belong to us so i say we start saying that <laughs> from afghanistan it all belong to us <laughs> i mean this is documented this all in history even if you google search the map of ancient india you will see all these kingdoms mapped out and they were following the common culture i mean gandhari is a shiva bhakt doesn't matter that you know shakuni was a uh, that is okay uh, good and bad people exist but the culture was the same it was not a different culture so we see that in this uh, shri krishna uh, you know keeps a vigil over because aryavarth has gone into all these uh, different different uh, areas there are different kingdoms and each is now trying to build an empire so actually ultimately even then till the end he wants to avoid the war now here there is very interesting um, exchange between vidur and shri krishna when shri krishna goes to uh, ask vidur uh, uh, for as uh, for the shanti to ask for five villages so vidur counsels krishna he says why have you come now vidur is in another strange dilemma he knows that dharma is on the side of pandava but he also doesn't want the kuru empire to be gone so at one point he also tries to counsel that you know why you are asking all this it's it's okay you know and that's how we see that sanjay goes and communicates to the pandavas that look here uh, your um, he's what he's tauji uh, he's uh, requesting you 
that you better take sannyas, leave all this, why you want to fight and then comes the entire background and then the war develops. So it is a true story of a real war. But here Shubhindu brings out how through war and conflict, just as an in individual life, you can't make a progress if you want to close your eyes to war. At some point you have to face the conflict inside squarely. You have to make a choice. If you keep on taking the equestrian position, whatever it is called, it doesn't take us very far. It may steer a, uh, you know, it may make you in a kind of, put you in a comfort zone, but not the greatness and glory and nobility and heroism which Mahavarata is about. So we see that uh, war is, uh, Shubhinda speaks about it. One of the places when Shubhinda was asked that, uh, well, sir, now there is peace. This is after the, I think, Second World War, most likely. Yeah, or the First World War. Anyways, he was asked, now there is peace and now we will have the fulfillment of the dream of the new world. He says, the new world is not likely to come this way. Most likely, it is likely to come through war. Because another aphorism where he says, men die so that man may live and God be born. So we have not understood what the, what is the sense of these conflicts in the individual and at a larger scale. This conflict is always invariably between two kinds of forces. One which move towards the uh, higher forms of life, higher forms of life expression. Another which want to pull us back downwards towards a old form. And behind all this, there is on one side the devas and the other side are the asuras. Asuras are fighting only for self-aggrandizement, for satisfying their ambition, for position, for crushing those, uh, the subjects. Whereas the devas also fight and devas find to release dharma into a group of humanity. They are fighting for that. So we see this uh, Mahabharata, a, a classical tale of the war between, no, it's not a fratricidal war alone. It's not even a war of two civilizations. It's one civilization. But it is a war where a nation or a civilization has to choose not by a democratic vote because that didn't exist at that time. Even though they were Janpats, there was a full-fledged proper king and democracy together in India. Uh, though it was not the way we have assemblies in the Greeks. If you read Indian literature, it's so interesting that the people had a say. That's why that uh, washerman had a say. Uh, and Ram had to consent because the voice of the people had its own place. The final decision had to be made by the king. The king could overrun it or the king could keep it. That was left to the king to make a choice. But the people had their voice. They could voice their opinion and they could speak about it. They were not stifled as in certain countries. And that's what actually in a way world will eventually move towards that. But that apart. So war is something where we at its root, it's a war of idea. So idea of a nation in uh, in the light of the way we understand from the Indian spiritual point of view, that ultimately at the core is dharma. So in Mahabharat, we see many, many kind of dilemmas. So this is the other aspect of Mahabharat, that we see many dilemmas which are unique, which even today we don't face. And yet, Vyasa has solved them by a an understanding of dharma which is too deep and profound and subtle, which doesn't fall into a typical rule book of right and wrong. For example, when Draupadi is married to five brothers, so on one side it is the dharma to follow uh, your mother's word. Why it is dharma? Because, well, 
Mother is the one. You see, it was not like today we say, oh, we don't care whatever the parents are saying. Now the reason that age it was, especially mother's word, father's word was not so important. Right then and then we have several examples where people uh, had problems with what the father had said. And they came into conflict. Nachiketa is one example. There are several others. But mother's word was important because it was understood that the mother will never give a counsel to a child which would harm him. Mother is, fathers may be blinded by their own ambition and give a counsel, not to harm, but they may drive the child along paths which are not very uh, healthy. Though we have, of course, all kinds of uh, combinations. Kekasi, which was mother of uh, Ravana, gave him a wrong counsel that you must become Dhatiraj. But still, we see that mothers used to give that. So, mother's word carried that um, great authority. And these Pandava brothers, they knew that, you know, their mother is, uh, how she has brought them up with such hardship. So, they have given their mother this place. And the, when the mother says, distribute what you have won equally amongst all of you. Now, it's a great dilemma. I don't think that in the entire history of uh, mankind, a woman has faced such a dilemma where she is simultaneously married to five men and she could have just said, I don't care, I'll just go away, I'll lead my own life or she could have insisted, nobody would have forced her, neither Yudhishthir nor Kunti and yet she chooses that no, I'll stay married with these five brothers. Now comes a very complex tale. We see that when they go back, this is challenged in the Kuru Sabha, that how can uh, Yudhishthir claim to be the claimant higher to a throne when he has married a woman who is married to his four brothers. So all these dynamics go in. And these subtleties of dharma, which of course, uh, it's a very vast subject as uh, someone has rightly said, are brought out. And then again we see that Ultimately, what does Vyas do? He brings in as the ultimate authority. Look here. He he never, nowhere he says any, nowhere he portrays Krishna as a, you know, divine. Though there is this sense of divinity which runs through. Oh, except one word. When through the characters he describes Krishna, there is only one place where he uses the word aprameya, which means immeasurable. That's the only word which conveys all. Otherwise, it doesn't say anything anywhere. Uh, see, those stories of Gokul and all, they are not part of uh, um, part of Mahabharata, though they are shown as that. You have Srimad Bhagavat Puran where you find these stories. So, there, are no mirac- there is no miraculous Krishna there. Krishna is close to human and yet time to time one can sense the Godhead in Vyas Mahabharata. And yet, he calls him at one point Aprame. But yet, he brings in the Gita. Now, surely, uh, people often, with regard to Gita, they say that it has been imposed. Now, people say that Vyas, Mahabharat, there are different authors. Shubindo agrees that, yes, there are different authors. But uh, unlike many uh, Western-based scholars who say that ultimately they were just about 8,000 8, slokas, he says, no, they were 24 to 26,000. And then there are others, because it's a book of roughly one lakh slokas. So he says, when you study the style, you can know the difference. And one classic example he gives is of, on one side, when Vyas describes the war and all these, you know, there is a high nobility in Vyas. He doesn't, it's like for Vyas, something like romance is out of question. 
when you read vyas it looks like that <laughs> unlike ramayan where you know you you feel there is so much in the air which is about love vyas doesn't means words so you know draupadi gets married in the swamvar and everybody gets married in the swamvar but even savitri story there is very noble and mature story there is one or two places where we see uh, that there is the ramayan style so once the story is ruru though there is not so much of romance in it as a sacrifice of love but the only story where we see a a touch of romance is in the air and that is the story of nalanda mayanti so we know that in mahabharata there are several tales each tale is a tale of dharma savitri is a tale of dharma there is even the death the cosmic deities have their dharma and savitri has to remind them teach them what dharma is then of course in the tale of nalanda mayanti it's all about dharma ruru and pramod writes about dharma so from every angle he has given practically every situation dilemmas we may face in life and it's a very complex thing it's not something as simple we oversimplify uh, with our uh, you know uh, what shall i say uh, instead of a thought which is all encompassing when we have a very linear thought so we we have binaries karna is uh, good or karna is bad this is the way of binary thinking where you have a linear thought that well injustice was done to him at birth and therefore uh, you sympathize with him this is not how uh, a man of dharma sees he doesn't go with that and we see in uh, mahabharata several instances where adhikar bhed is another very interesting thing in in the mahabharata for instance the eklavya story now eklavya is not a dalit or uh, you know eklavya is a kshatriya child i mean his father is a Uh, he is a senapati. <laughs> I am forgetting which kingdom army. He is a senapati. He is a shatriya. He wants to now learn. Now, why he can't be taught is not because he is not a shatriya. He cannot be taught because Dronacharya very well understands that he has been given the task to train the princes of the Kuru clan. Why? Because Kuru Empire must be the greatest. So he has to be true to his mission. he can't take karn he can't take others it's nothing to do with karn being born the way we portray all this it's simply because his task is to ensure that the best he doesn't want to supposing for instance you know um if you know north korean president says says all are equal uh, i will i am going to get nuclear technology from anywhere you will say no because that's where adhikar bhed comes in so uh, this was very well understood in ancient india and they kept their interest in mind so dronacharya kept the interest of the kuru clan so he would not teach it to eklavya he would not teach it to karna and he would go out of his way to ensure that the interest of his empire are safeguarded so to that extent it is well within his means and limits to do what he does though it is justified in another way also in the mahabharata because uh, as we know the dog the dog is barking because it's a hunter dog and it has sense that sniffed that there is some somebody out there and is eklavya who has put dronacharya pratima and practicing archery and this dog goes and starts barking and eklavya instantly pushes a volley of arrows and stuffs his mouth and then dronacharya gives a valid reason he said look at this fellow he is supposed to be a mighty archer he has no control over himself he is using all his skills against a helpless dog stuffing his mouth with arrows giving him such a cruel death what kind of a uh, you know warrior he is going to become so he refuses not only refuses he takes away the thumb which is 
uh, important. You know, again, you see that story takes a very interesting turn of event because the kingdom uh, with to which Eklavya belonged, they go with Duryodhana. Ideally, they should not have stood by Dronacharya. So that was a fight which was of a different nature, where nations were looking for their own um, existence and how to side with different forces. We see the forces same acting in India at this point of time. There are centripetal forces which want to disintegrate. They want a weak king at the top. They will support him by all the props because this suits their purpose. There are others who have an issue which is about, uh, they, they don't care about who is at the center, but they are personally against. And therefore they are personally attacking a, a prime minister because they have an axe to grind. And then there are others who are happy with the idea of a united India. And they want a united India because they feel this is, they identify with uh, Ikshvakus, they identify with the Pandavas and this clan which has always built beautiful empires. So when we look at Mahabharata from that perspective, so all all that subtlest thing that Vyas has to say, he says it through Sri Krishna in the Gita. Now, of course, Sri Krishna never wrote anything, this for sure. It is the Gita is a verbal document and it has been written by Vyas. Some people say that it has been uh, later on added. But if we look at the Bhagavad Gita, it's very clear it starts with the description of the battlefield. Several times Sri Krishna reverts back to the scenario in which Arjun is standing. He reverts back again and again that there is a war out there Arjun. You may die but better you remember me and die. Either conquer the kingdom nobly or if you have to perish, perish valiantly. All through, right up to the end, even in that Vishrup Darshan, very clearly he is showing the warriors which are right out there. They are all going into his mouth and emerging out of him. So we see that the Bhagavad Gita, of course it's not that Sri Krishna wrote it technically. But whether Vyas documented it, whether Sanjay saw it and you know whether it was uh, you know, um, uh, written by Lord Ganesh. But one thing is very clear that the Bhagavad Gita is written in the stress of deep inspiration by none else but Sri Krishna himself. That's how Shivinda puts it. Because if you look at the style is similar, even in Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna is very different. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't mollycoddle Arjun. He says, Arjun, you are my good friend. You know, if, if it is Ramayana, he will say, Arjun, don't you feel how much I have loved you, how much I have cared for you? That would be Ramayana. Ram is telling to Lakshman, why are you doing this to me at this point of time? Don't you think it is right to do? Nothing. It is typically the way of Vyas. It starts, Sri Krishna starts a volley of literally verbal arrows and each one a choicest word and the same type of words which we find in Mahabharat where you know Draupadi uses against Bhim in Kichaks you know Bhim is sleeping nicely when Kichak is trying to outrage her modesty and Draupadi comes and tells him you claim that you are a brave man and a courageous man what use is your courage you are lying like a log happy you have taken food and you are lying on the floor and you think you are brave why unto you I mean if you read those words they are enough to shake even a dead man and here is Beam he gets up and the rest is history this is a way almost similar Sri Krishna tells Arjun he chides him 
you are talking you have become like a napunsak what kind of a person you are clevium you are dorbal uh, you are weak what are you doing and you know typical way of vyas but inspired by shri krishna that's how shivinda puts it that when we look at it right through and through the way he brings out the deepest profundities of dharma and that deepest profundity ultimately is that action is the path that man must take and his choices must be based on the way of dharma uh vivek can you give me that ipad so i'll just read a little passage because i can just i'll forget the time it is such a fascinating subjects with many many aspects um <laughs> of mahabharata but i'll just read something from shirbindo ah this is so beautiful now in the mahabharata now he admits that mahabharata there have been different writers he says it doesn't matter because whoever has done the editions are have done it brilliantly he says one can see the different styles so there is the style of vyas and places there is the ramayana style but even that he says that possibly when vyas was young so like any youngster he had the romantic vein and so we see the story of nal and damyanti with the swan going around he brings it so beautifully but even if there are many um, places where we see a strong ramayanic bent or a weak ramayanic bent he says it has been done very beautifully because whoever has added has taken the pains to weave it beautifully in the story and therefore he says ramayana mahabharata is like a vast cathedral which has been built by many people so you know it's not like just one authorship okay fine there are other authors but each one is embodying some aspect of the indian soul and to that extent it's wonderful so there is a mass of writing in which the verse and language is unusually bare simple and great full of form and knotted thinking now this knotted thinking is the story where uh, ganesh has to take time to understand what he is writing what he is speaking <laughs> that story we all know so the imagination strong and pure never florid or richly colored you see that in ramayana rama is asking every Uh, every leaf where is my sita where is my sita nothing of that kind you will see in mahabharata when you know draupadi's modesty has been outraged or she has been taken by jadrath uh, is not who draupadi where are you <laughs> the, the pandu princess go heroic it's all about heroism of a very sublime kind humanly heroic not superhumanly heroic humanly heroic the idea is austere original and noble there is another body of work sometimes massed together but far oftener interspersed in the other which has exactly different qualities so this he have already spoken now but i'll just read one passage paucity of time so just and then we can have questions uh, okay so the mahabharata is not only the story of the bharatas the epic of an early event which had become a national tradition but on a vast scale the epic of the soul and religious and ethical mind and social and political ideals and culture and life of india so it embodies that's why somebody has said not only mahabharata is the fifth veda because all the great ideas of the vedas are there and uh, that whatever is there in bharat is there in mahabharat and what is not there in in mahabharat is not there in bharat you can see it as a corollary so we see it's a beautiful blend uh, 
even those who have contributed have actually enriched it so it's perfectly fine um the mahabharata is the creation and expression not of a single individual mind but of the mind of a nation it is a poem of itself written by a whole people see when i went recently to barcelona i saw that wonderful you know cathedral being built by uh, different doors and it's so wonderful you know but this though there is one person who is behind it but several hands have gone into building it so that's how mahabharata is it's it's the voice of soul of the soul of india it is the poem of itself written by a whole people and personally if you ask me whether you make geeta compulsory or not that's a different thing but every indian should learn read mahabharata it's a story which is about us it doesn't matter what religion you are it's irrelevant it's the story of a people of a nation how it thought how it felt how it chose how it acted in a moment you know it's it's its soul we'll get connected with its soul i mean that's how i look at it and uh, that's the effect at least mahabharata had on me thanks to reading mahabharata at a very young age i could never identify with film heroes or sports people as my uh, you know <laughs> ideals it was very clear ideal to arjun hai <laughs> ideal is arjun and god is krishna all other things like you know uh, they pale into insignificance this idea of being in rags and taking sanyas after seeing krishna on the battlefield who would ever choose that ideal and uh, how beautifully brings out about tyag sanyas of course gita is a vast subject and it's in the and we see siddhi day you know this is exactly what shirobindo did he established once again the idea of an undivided india we just talk about india and you know uh, the map which is made in the ashram playground is the map of an united india which always existed incidentally it has always existed and this map was made in 1954 after the partition because this is the map of true india akhand bharat is not something which you know uh, we can debate or discuss that's a different thing it is the soul of a nation you can't dismember a body which it is lived together there are formations there are energies released in these areas so mahabharata is the creation and expression not of a single individual but the mind of a nation it's the poem of itself written by a whole people it would be vain to apply to it the canons of a poetical art applicable to an epic poem with a smaller and more restricted purpose the whole poem now look at this wonderful line the whole poem has been built like a vast national temple unrolling slowly its immense and complex idea from chamber to chamber there several mini stories it's just unimaginable if one just reads the stories which are offshoots in the mahabharata one would be richly rewarded every time you this the same thing is followed in ramayana but much more in mahabharata every time they go to an ashram see how these ashrams used to teach they didn't charge money and give you a technique this is wove a story and through the story they gave what they had to say something so amazing we know savitri is there in um, part of uh, yudhishthir's rendezvous with um, markandey 
The whole poem has been built like a vast national temple, unrolling slowly its immense and complex idea from chamber to chamber, crowded with significant groups and sculptures and inscriptions. The grouped figures carved in divine or semi-divine proportions. A humanity aggrandized and half-lifted, uplifted to superhumanity, and yet always true to the human motive and idea and feeling. That's where he tempers. The strain of the real constantly raised by the tones of the ideal. The life of this world amply portrayed but subjected to the conscious influence and presence of the parts of the worlds behind it. So you don't have like in Ramayana you have all the Navagrahas who have been captured, the Triloka Adipati, no. But you have Arjun who is the uh, Ansh of Indra. You have Karna who is the Ansh of Surya. So all these aspects are there. That there are the Godhead, the cosmic forces which are behind these agencies. That is there. Even the demons, you have an augur, Baka, what, what was that fellow who was um, killed by Bhim? Anyways, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. He, he is more about his appetite. He is an augur. He is not, uh, not like, you know, when you look at the fellows in, in, in Ravana's time, Ahi Ravan, they are... Terrible, I mean you can't imagine. <laughs> but they are more at that level. So always there is that sense of the real. So he wouldn't create a character which is, uh, which goes beyond the pale of our human imagination. That's why for the modern mind Mahabharata is more appealing. While Ramayana is more, uh, those who have a psychic turn, those who feel from the heart, they find it very appealing. But Mahabharata appeals to the modern mind because it is the characters, even in their superhumanity, are human true to the human aim and the whole uplifted by a long embodied procession of a consistent idea worked out in the wide steps of the poetic story so this idea of course we know uh, Shubhinda brings out at the same time though supremely interesting in substance and vivid in the manner of the telling as a poetic story it is something more a significant tale, itihas, representative throughout of the central ideas and ideals of Indian life and culture. So what is that one word which describes Indian life and culture? Here he says, the leading motive is the Indian idea of the Dharma. India never fought a religious war. This concept is an anathema. Because it's not about religion. Ravan is of the same religion. He is a Brahmin by birth, to, to boot it. Comes from a lineage of Pulastrishi, who is Brahma's lineage. His co-brothers are Kuber and uh, co-brother, no cousins. Uh, Narad, who is his grandfather or Chacha or something like that, you know. He comes from that lineage. But the fellow must go. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Why? Because he is representing a dharma. And more so because he is mighty, he is a knowledgeable person. And yet he falls in lust for a woman who is helplessly in a forest. This is not acceptable. So we see in both the stories, feminine figures become important to topple an empire. Here, Ravana has done many misdeeds. This is not the first time. But then, here he crossed all limits. He goes to a forest where there is a lady in the hermitage who is unarmed, her husbands are not, her husband is not there, her nobody is there to protect and Ravana kidnaps her, takes her by force, this is not acceptable. This starts the downfall of the empire of Ravan. And there again we see Draupadi is dragged to the Kuru Sabha. Some people say it is not portrayed, it is there. Of course, 
maybe different authors. So she is dragged to the court, and this event marked the downfall of the Kuru Empire. So we see the power of the feminine who stands behind all these Pandavas, holding them together because Draupadi is conscious of a mission. She is not on a personal uh, happiness journey. No, I want only Arjuna. I want to be married and happily satisfied. This idea is an anathema to the Indian mind. It's not for personal pleasure or joys of the flesh. It is for the glory and greatness of the spirit that the Indian thought has lived, and that we see in Ramayana and the Mahabharata. None of the characters. Sita is not saying, "Oh, I had a comfortable life in the palace. Why are you sending me away?" It. That's not the issue at all. The issue can be dharma. Debate can be over dharma. not over personal happiness seeking of comfort that we see how when they are abandoned to the forest these pandavas how they go they are purified by that ordeal so we see constantly this idea of dharma and dharma in the indian context is not a rule book it is not about moral ideas of right and wrong because there are many gray shades and we have to make critical choices and that's where the choices are made the leading motive is the indian idea of the dharma here the vedic notion of the struggle between the godheads of truth and light and unity and the powers of darkness and division and falsehood is brought out from the spiritual and religious and internal into the outer intellectual ethical and vital plane so there are human representatives you just can't just internalize them that all war is inside this is a neat way of finishing it off it is inside no doubt about it you have to conquer hatred and anger inside but it is also outside because they are representatives of a dharma and you have to meet them tackle them take the challenge of life and if necessary you know they must pass out of existence so this is here uh, so there are those who are embodying the greater ethical ideals of the indian dharma and others who are embodiments of asuric egoism and self-will and misuse of misuse of the dharma the political battle in which the personal struggle culminates an international clash ending in the establishment of a new rule of righteousness and justice a kingdom or rather an empire of the dharma uniting warring races and substituting for the ambitious arrogance of kings and aristocratic clans the supremacy the calm and peace of a just and humane empire it is the old struggle of the asura deva and asura god and titan this the way in which this double form is worked out and the presentation of the movement of individual lives and of the national life first as their background and then as coming into the front in a movement of kingdoms and armies and nations show a high architectonic faculty akin in the sphere of poetry to that which labored in indian architecture so we see that uh, now we we can because you know we can have questions i am fine with it but to close that look how shirobindo even if we forget everything else logical continuation of the work of the avatars parshuram finishes the haya kingdom when you know the empire has gone ori and it has forgotten the path of dharma we see ram once again builds an empire based on dharma demolishing the forces which are of a dharma we see shri krishna once again defeating the forces of retrogression paritranaay sadhuna vinashay chudushtam dharma sansthapna thai sambhavami yogi yogi and once again securing bharatvarsh which for 3500 years continues to be safeguarded you see there were foreign attacks during that time kal yavan who is kal yavan but one of those uh, 
Greek, Iranian, whatever side we may say. So probably a Greek and he was the one who had attacked. So they were foreign powers which had entered. And yet because of Sri Krishna's teaching and because of you know establishing the rule of dharma, we see that all these forces were repelled and kept at abeyance for almost 3000 years. But then slowly the dharma fades, dharma siglani, and then we see a series of invasions and the last of bit of the power of Krishna we see embodied in Rani Lakshmi Bai of Chhansi and then long lull when suddenly everybody is sleeping supplicating to placate asking, begging for independence and then once again we see like the phoenix Sri Krishna rises again <laughs> returns again 1905 with Shurbindo declaring about Poon Swaraj complete independence brings life into a sleeping nation, establishes the soul of India and then he once again unarmed, sitting in his room, fights the great battle of the modern Kurukshetra, which was the second great war. So if you look at it and all through, you know, we see Shurabindo's again, one of his dream is the dream of a united India, which is exactly what Sri Krishna did establish at that point of time. And then of course there is the other Aspect the dream of a united world that was still not at that point of time in consideration. So all these things are, we can see Shurabindo logically continuing Sri Krishna's work. And is it then little wonder that Sri Krishna chose to unite with Shurabindo, which is the event we celebrate on Siddhi Day, when Sri Krishna, the personality of the avatar Sri Krishna has come and fused with Sri literally saying, now the age that is dawning is yours. Lead it. Give the new Yuga Dharma of the age. Give the new Gita. And the Yuga Dharma was the spiritual and supramental transformation. The age of integration where matter and spirit must integrate, synthesize. This is the new Yuga Dharma. And the new gospel he gave in place of the Gita is Savitri. Namaste. Uh, I'm sorry this has gone way beyond what I had. Uh, I think I had to restrain myself because it's a vast subject. But if there are any questions, I am always happy to take it. Thank you, Alaji. Uh, one question I think is a high schooler. Why did Abhimanyu and Uttara's unborn son had to bear wrath of Brahmastra? When the child was still in womb and couldn't have been carrying such intense bad karma from past life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this question uh, about Abhimanyu and Parikshit. So uh, leave aside the bad karma. This is not in Indian thought. This bad karma, good karma has come much later. The theory of karma is very different. It's an evolutionary mechanism. And it's not about justice. It's about justice is there but it's a very subordinate element. The main purport of karma theory is evolution through the choices we make. Uh, and this applies as much in everyday life. You don't have to bring in even the divine element. Your choices will either help you evolve towards a greater uh, state or they put us down. And this regardless of, you may get outer success by a certain kind of uh, action and choice. But inwardly we may be impoverished. So karma is about that. It's a big subject. So I am not touching upon that. But Abhimanyu. Now you look at Abhimanyu. It's so interesting. Uh, imagine Abhimanyu not dying the way he died. 
you know paradoxes we won't even remember him so abhimanyu's life typifies what shore is see there is a term in indian thought which is called veer so veer comes from virya virya is spiritual energy now you see warriors can be skillful there are many skillful warriors on both sides so um, you know they are swift they are bold they are all all these qualities are there so that's like technique they they know the technique and the technology and they also have the psychological making of a warrior but there is something which abhimanyu brings out which is missing in almost all the warriors and that is the energy of the soul so when arjun goes for a sacrifice even till uh, abhimanyu goes for a sacrifice even till today in in the indian war you see that young uh, uh, arun khetrapal he died just a young age of 21 or more recently vikram batra why do we celebrate it you know by dying they became immortal this is a curve of destiny which a certain soul chooses it's actually a leap if abhimanyu would have uh, said yeah i know i can't actually break the uh, i can't return back tauji would you come along with me abhimanyu is there is no glory of abhimanyu so these were people who lived for glory and they died for glory see did the geeta this what shri krishna tells arjuna either you conquer and enjoy the kingdom but conquer it justly or if you have to fall fall nobly protecting the people but don't run away from this battle of life so abhimanyu typifies that door of glory which souls choose and in the indian context uh, we don't look at the life of one body or one form so we always believe that those who die fighting for truth and justice and right uh, for them the doors of heaven open so this is a way of saying that well they meet the they meet glory and they Uh, take another life we had now it's there many aspects to it but again i am restraining myself then the second aspect is parikshit see it's very interesting the pandavas five pandavas and parikshit you know what is unique about them uh, of course it included karna also but karna lost that chance that none of them is a human birth you see it's interesting <laughs> you see in christianity we have the conception of virgin birth buddha virgin birth so this idea was that these are forces of a new order they are forces that have not yet manifested upon earth so the six pandavas represent the new kind of forces they are not born in the normal human way i mean there is a physical process no doubt about it but there are forces of other being realms which have come what about parikshit now look at the story parikshit is destroyed in the womb but parikshit is revived by krishna so if you see parikshit himself becomes a child of the new consciousness he is born embodying the consciousness of krishna actually krishna has given him life so he becomes literally the child of krishna who becomes the ruler of the uh, future indian nation so it's a very very beautiful story uh, very significant very symbolic it's not about bad karma if anything it's about the good karma to die to your old consciousness and be born as krishna's child is something which <laughs> i'm sure one would covet very much or to die a glorious death like abhimanyu defending uh, truth and justice against uh, the champions of unrighteousness is something very beautiful to a warrior soul it's something very beautiful yes next question vivek ji yeah i said mm-hmm. slightly humorous but i'll just ask anyway mm-hmm. uh, ravi is asking 
and Duryodhana earned a place in heaven too after the war. Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. True, true. So that's another thing that Duryodhana also earned a place in heaven. So earning a place in heaven was never considered something great in Indian thought. So they heaven was like one of like you can build a very nice house, wonderful house. So you have earned a place in heaven. So, but the story explains what the why Duryodhana earned the place in heaven. That there in the story. So none of us is completely black or white. This binary doesn't exist. There are sheets of grey. So Duryodhana also has sheets of grey. What is the grey side of Duryodhana? He has. He is ambitious. He is uh, you know. Uh, terribly ambitious, power hungry, but there are some very good things about Duryodhana. Duryodhana is shown as he lusts after power, but he doesn't lust after women, even though that's the place where he calls for Draupadi's this thing. But more importantly, the one quality, good, uh, good quality about Duryodhana is that he wants to fight and then he wins. So he has courage inside him. He doesn't run away from a battle. Time to time he is shown when the enemy is like much beyond his reckoning. But he doesn't want to run away from uh, from the war field. Uh, unlike uh, Shakuni's counsel and the ways of Shakuni. He succumbed to it. But there were some good elements inside him. And it is to these elements that they go after death into a... Um, uh, you know, that higher world. So this, we can well understand if we read um, Yoga Vasist where we see that the same person is simultaneously experiencing hell, simultaneously experiencing heaven, that part which was ambitious, lustful, greedy, that goes into the dark world, that part, everybody has a little beautiful side that goes in heaven for a while. But heaven is not a big deal, you return back. So in Indian thought, it was never going into heaven was considered great. Even the Gita mentions that. That those who seek after their desires, they go to heavens assisted by the gods. But then there are the great ones who seek after liberation. They seek after moksha. Moksha not about otherworldly moksha, but freedom from ignorance. So that was the idea. So it's okay, let him rest in heaven. He missed the opportunity of being an instrument of the divine, which is a great loss. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Next question is from Prashanta. Uh, in both Mahabharata and Ramayana, it is the woman who might have lost the most. For example, Sita, Draupadi, Kunti, Gandhari, etc. Is there any significance of this in your opinion? Uh, no, they didn't lose. See, that's the beauty. First, I'll come to Ramayana where we see extreme. See, look at the beauty of the poet. Imagine... Of course, I know that Uttarakhand is a debatable thing. Actually, it is debatable because there are elements in Uttarakhand which it is there now as we have received Valmiki Ramayana. It is not called as Uttarakhand. It is the seventh book. But definitely when we read, there is an uneven passage and it doesn't um, uh, doesn't uh, you know feel like the rest of Ramayana. The character of Rama also doesn't go with the rest of what is there in Ramayana. But that apart. But actually, if you look at it from another perspective, what is Sita? Imagine if Sita would not have gone through what she went through. What, what would have happened to the feminine character? I find something very amazing about this aspect. That if Sita was not abandoned, if she didn't go through that Agni Pariksha or stay with you know in that place with all this hardship, this Ramayana would have been a one-sided story of Ram. Just a, honestly, it would have been then a very male-dominated story. But it has become a Sitayan simply because Sita is the epitome of a woman who even when abandoned by the husband 
whatever be the you know just cause and all i have spoken about it that there was a reason raj dharm let's leave it aside let's say that she is abandoned now what does a woman who is abandoned do she could have gone and gathered the kings to protect her got married uh, tried to attack uh, ram uh, thrown calumny against him she does none of them she goes to ashram delivers her children those two children grow up into jewels marvelous children single handedly they don't carry a single bitterness about their father in fact they have heard only beautiful things about their father that's how they recount ramayan in the court of ram so they look at sita she brings them up together not for once even when later on they say no no you please come back she lives with her self respect and dignity so i think sita's character has been ennobled through that she not a weak woman she not see suffering rama also suffered if you see suffering uh, pandava suffered suffering is not something that indian mind tried to escape from but suffering was the test which steeled or purified the gold i think to say that only draupadi suffered and pandavas didn't suffer would be quite an exaggeration they both suffered but both of them draupadi and kunti on one side and pandavas on the other side they turned their suffering into a test of fire and they brought out the best out of it that's what is the greatness of draupadi and that's how we see just one one more sentence that see the story of draupadi is epitomized when yudhishthir goes and asks markande he says has there ever been a woman more noble and chaste and yet who has suffered so much as draupadi because he is weighing in his mind about the humiliation and then markande says yes savitri who suffered and conquered an adverse fate so naltamayanti all these stories man and woman both suffered if you see but the thing is what they made out of suffering is the issue indian mind didn't shrink from suffering it didn't invite suffering either it didn't love suffering it didn't shrink from suffering but when suffering came it took it as a means to purify and the best came out of it that's what draupadi and sita is about thank you um another question is from devend bhai um devend patel that he want to ask you about akhand bharat yes it's it's akhand bharat to to me i've spoken about it even there is a probably a separate talk on youtube uh, i'm sure uh, by the name of akhand bharat where i have tried in de- details what is akhand bharat it's not a modern thing it is not a creation of modern mind akhand bharat has existed in the conception of the rishis all the if you join the 51 parts of sati all around you will have a kand bharat it's a spiritual conception india is not a material land it is a spiritual conception and the land has over a period of time through the flux and flow of time eventually it has undergone several changes names have changed kings have changed much upheaval has taken place but india actually the world if you see from savitri point of view uh, this world is a conception spiritual conception so same thing with india and india i'm sure it is true of all nations so but i am focusing right now on india that india is a spiritual conception it's a yagyavedi meant for the good of the world and akhand bharat is not a requirement for just some vociferous indians who love india sentimentally no akhand bharat is necessary for the world and just as the mother once remarked that the sooner you build matri mandir the better it is for auroville let me say this very prophetically that the sooner we have akhand bharat the better it is for the good of the world 
the more we delay it under any kind of you know uh, molly coddling and uh, looking good and appearing good the more we are delaying the good of the world and it's obvious if we look at the political scenario don't we see what is happening in that portion of akhand bharat which has been done khand it has become the hub of all that could be dar it's like a limb becoming gangrenous even the other limb bangladesh myanmar look at what is happening it's becoming gangrenous and okay we may have a dismembered uh, india but it's dismembered india is not good for the world because if there is a light which can rescue the world out of its present state it is india and this i can say without a doubt and you know the facts are there to see it where do we find hope yeah namaskar namaskar i i have a 100% faith that whatever sri almindo and mataji said but the way things are running right now look at the muslims are this want to integrate india plus pakistan and bangladesh and afghanistan do you oh. how you going to conquer this take take this? take another prophecy they are hurtling toward their doom this is the path that will only accelerate their disintegration because the world recoils very badly and it is already beginning to recoil and if those who are trying to disintegrate india and the world by these means if they don't see the writing on the wall it is going to hit back very badly because already the recoil has begun 20 years back it may have been said that you know they are doing menacing but the world is beginning to recoil because there is something like the world soul it won't accept this for long there is enough manhood and enough humanity and heroism and chivalry still in the world enough goodness that it will not accept see politics is the last thing to change but the average human beings are beginning to see through the game not only in india but all over and this game won't last long this is the way they are hurtling toward their doom uh, maybe 20 years 30 years so the next question is i think you have uh, covered few of them but i'll just ask the question if you want to add something the force is by burney the force that exists in india also exists throughout the world is there any hope for the world to coexist or are we destined for world war 3 i i don't see a world war 3 i see massive conflicts brewing in several areas uh, because as i said war unfortunately is the uh, mother of uh, father not mother heraclitus said it's the father of uh, things so uh, there will be many conflicts in different parts of the world uh, for the simple reason that you know we are holding on to our fixed positions but this conflict is likely to take two forms uh, one is the conflict of nations this is not going to be the common one the more common conflict will be within the people of a nation and the political system this is the new war if you like to call it and uh, it has begun and it will upset many nations probably weaken them strengthen them nations have to go through this till ultimately they recover their lost soul so it's a part of the process uh, these uh, kind of uh, and they may take the form of uh, you know civil wars not so much wars the way we understand but this is part of the process but not third world war in the way uh, say the second world war or the first world war took place certainly not thank you world, world conditions, conditions won't allow it yeah thank you thank next question from shivalli um yudhishthir said to be embodiment of dharma 
but it is Yudhishthir that gets into game dice. Yes. What can be the significance in the portrayal of the character this way? Yes, so very beautiful. So dharma, that as I said, dharma is a thing which is very subtle. And in Mahabharata, several places we see this dilemma coming up. Now with Yudhishthir case, on one side, as a king, he is not supposed to refuse a challenge. Even if it's a game of dice. See, that is the paradox. Uh, if a Kshatriya is called and a king, particularly with a neighboring kingdom, that's how Null loses all his uh, wealth. So if he's invited or invited to a challenge, game is a challenge, he can't say no because he is shrinking from his Kshatriya duties. So to that extent, he's going for... They didn't see as good or bad. It was a challenge. So he goes for that challenge, which he takes up. And um, to that extent, it was okay. But that's where the story shows that if, when, you know, it's like Bhishma and Dronacharya, they have chosen to be uh, with their own people, that there is a higher dharma, a higher standard which you must resort to when there are conflicts. So here, on one side, he is supposed to not leave the game when he is losing. You can't just do that. So he keeps on, you know, putting things on stake and there his mind is possessed, obviously. Uh, even a man of a very, uh, Shubhindu had a very interesting answer to this when somebody who had practiced mental control for decades suddenly, you know, lost it and went away. So Shubhindu said, somebody asked, how could it, it happen? He said, haven't you known Yudhishthir's case? So a sattvic man, Yudhishthir is a sattvic man. Sattvic man is not a spiritual man. Sattvic man lives by dharma. But his control is not absolute. So there is definitely a moment when Yudhishthir completely lost uh, that sattvic uh, impulse because he was so much overtaken by Rachas. And at that point of time, he makes the blunder. The blunder is not on just about putting Draupadi at stake. You can't put even your kingdom at stake because it's not your kingdom. Uh, actually, in the deepest sense, according to dharma, you can't even put yourself at stake. You can put your outer possessions at stake. So Yudhishthir, so that story typifies that even a man as great and as dharmanist, in fact more so because for a dharmanist to make one error can cost him very heavy. Whereas ordinary human beings, there is a great allowance given by nature. But again, as I said, Yudhishthir gets purified by the struggle. It all works out for good because tomorrow Yudhishthir, uh, in the ways of destiny, Yudhishthir will be coronated as the emperor and destiny knows it. So destiny must prepare him for becoming the Raja who upholds Dharma. So he goes through all the dilemmas of Dharma, even during one was. One parv, he is asked questions by the yaksha to ensure, who is none else but his father, yaksha, he, he comes as yaksha, to make sure that Yudhishthir understands dharma. So then he is equipped to become the king, emperor. That's why Sri Krishna does not that time incite them to fight. They could have won had they come to fight that time with the entire Yadu clan along with their side. But at that point of time, he doesn't because he has to be purified, go through the ordeal. So that story typifies that. Yes. Thank you, Alokji. I think uh, that... Can... can I ask a last question, please? Sure, please. Yes. Okay. Thank you yes. so much. Yeah. Dear Alok, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful uh, lecture and um, all so helpful with so many ways. I reminded uh, Mother said that there's only one country needed to stand up for the trees. Do you think that's going to be India? And do you think we will see that in this life? 
for sure and left to come. How do you see that? Yes, so Shurbindu said that, that for this Chaturyuk, that is the, this uh, uh, four, uh, four ages form a cycle, uh, this is the seventh one. So he says that for this uh, cycle of creation, India is the chosen country. It's not that it is every cycle in every age, but for this cycle, India has been the chosen country to uphold the highest values for mankind and eventually uh, bring it out. And I take, I have a very simple take on it. Apart from I could discuss the geopolitical scenario, but to take it in a very simple way that since such has been the decree, it will happen. Because all else can happen, but divine will eventually will fulfill itself. So I do trust the divine will that if Shubhinda said this in yoga and its objects, that for this Chatur Yoga, it is Krishna, it is India, which has been the divinely chosen country. So what divine has chosen, whatever may be the difficulties, challenges, we can see it in 70 years, the way India bounced back and is beginning to uh, show those signs, early signs of, uh, you know, recovering its lost, you know, um, truth. I won't use the word glory and greatness because they have different connotations. It's lost truth and just a matter of time. It has to rise for the good of the world. And it will be so. Sooner rather than later. Let me add to that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, anyone else if have a question we can ask. Otherwise, thank you very much, Alokji. I think it was a great uh, way to learn Mahabharat from Sri point of view and, and really have a different uh, view of the political uh, landscape of the India, how it all happened. Um, just to note for all of us, we may again have an opportunity to listen to Alokji on 1st January. So please wait for the invite. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much.